Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. It is this week's Sports Illustrated slash Tennis Channel Tennis Podcast. We have two guests this week. First, we talk with Tommy Paul, who is a 21-year-old, at least if you listen to this before Thursday, then he turns 22 on Friday. But uh, Tommy is a young American who won the French Open Juniors five years ago. He beat Taylor Fritz, and since then has been struggling a bit. He would be the first to admit that as a pro, but has caught a break this spring. He's played well and won the USTA French Open Wildcard Challenge. So he will be in the main draw of the 2019 French Open. And before Tommy Paul departed and crossed an ocean, we uh, talked to him about his career so far and what he expects from this big break, becoming a main draw player at the uh, at the 2019 French Open in a few days. We also speak with Tim Mayotte. Tim is a former top 10 pro from the 1980s who was one of the first people to throw his hat in the ring and... Uh, decided that he wanted to run for the ATP board spot that was being vacated by Justin Gimmelstab. Tim did not make the list of uh, six names that were voted on this week. We still have not had a determination uh, who's going to take that board spot. Two candidates left. But Tim talks a bit about the ATP, why he decided to do this, what are some of the issues he sees, and how he would have responded to some of the challenges men's tennis is playing uh, is facing if he were elected. So uh, two good calls, one with uh, a 20-year-old, one with a player from the 80s, two good perspectives. Uh, here's Tommy Paul first. You have won the 2019 French Open wild card. Congrats. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, real excited. I, I suspect uh, not everyone probably knows what that entails. Um, but why don't you explain it in your words? How, how, come, you're get, how come you're going to Paris? Um, so basically, I think there's uh, four tournaments or four weeks that count towards the, the wild card playoffs. Um, there's it, it's basically who out of those four weeks gets the most points. Um, I think it counts only three out of four of the weeks. Uh, I think last year it was two out of two out of four of the weeks. Uh, this year they bumped it up to three. So that's actually uh, the reason I ended up going to Savannah um for the last tournament so basically i played houston it started in houston and lost first round there it was my first tournament back from a little injury i had in my knee um and then started playing the florida challengers and started started playing pretty well and catching some fire and getting some confidence and started playing well got the got the wild card got the most points it was kind of a two-man race between me and Sangren uh, closer to the end. So it was, it was real fun. It was a good battle. And I, I think uh, me and him really enjoyed it. I think me maybe a little more than him. <laughs> I was going to say, you, uh, you won that battle. Um, so th- this was a playoff among – this is sort of a, a derby among American players for, uh, for a wild card into the main draw of the, of the 2019 French Open that accumulated over a number of events. What uh, what's this mean to you? I mean, what, what does this mean to your career? Um, a lot, a lot, definitely. I mean, I haven't been back to the French Open since 2016. Uh, I played qualies there the year after I won the juniors, and uh, it's definitely a special place for me. Um, really, really just excited to go back. Hopefully, I can have the whole family there and just. Just go out and compete. I mean, haven't played a main draw of a slam outside of the U.S. Open the two years that I that I played. Um, so I'm really excited to get out there on the dirt. Uh, it's 
com- uh, surface that I'm very comfortable on and uh, just excited to get out there. Yeah, talk about that. So the, the year before you tried to qualify in, in 2015, you won the boys' title. You beat uh, you beat dirt, dirt baller Taylor Fritz in uh, in a, in a three set in a three set final. Um, so let's yeah, go let, let's go there first. I, t- Taylor Fritz, uh, a very nice uh, qu- quietly having a very nice little clay court season as as you are as well. I, is that your game? Is that your upbringing? Is that something that the USTA stressed? Why this success on clay? Um, for me, I think yeah, it's just you. because growing up, the, the place that I played at, they only had clay courts, not even, like, not even one hard court. So even if I was playing junior tournaments on hard, I would practice on clay leading up to the hardcore tournaments and just, like, adjust once I got there. So, I mean, I think that plays a big role, um, just, like, feeling more comfortable on the clay just because, obviously, I grew up on it. Um, I think... And when we were in the juniors, uh, around like 14, 15, 16, uh, USTA started putting us on clay a lot. If we weren't preparing for a tournament on hard, we were practicing on clay. And I think they they did a good job um, trying to get us all comfortable on clay from from the start. So, I mean, I think all of that plays a big role. And also, uh, I, I just really like uh, digging out the points on the clay. It's a lot of fun. and it's uh, It really makes you – want to make every ball even more than on hard I think I was just talking about this with with another player recently is that is, is your personality coming to bear on on clay court tennis or does clay court tennis form your personality in other words does, does that sort of fondness for digging out is that the clay yeah that's bringing that out in you or are you I, bringing I think, that to clay I think it definitely depends on the person for me I think clay just brings out a different side of me where um it makes me want to. It makes me want to get down and dirty and start grinding. You know, just make make every ball and make the person in front of me uh, really, really earn the match if he's going to beat me. That sounds like uh, that sounds like David Ferrer's credo right there. Um, you turned twenty two uh, tw- twenty two years old on Friday. Happy birthday! In uh, yep. a couple days in oh, advance. Oh man, I'm getting old. Thank oh, you. wait, wait. We'll talk about that. Um, you know, you you are not a a teenager. You're not a junior anymore. At the same time. We talk about this a lot that careers now go into your mid thirties. I mean, where where do you see yourself, and how do you assess your career so far? Um, obviously, I'm not I'm not thrilled at where I am right now. Uh, I want to be a lot higher up in the rankings than where I am right now. But I've had some setbacks um, with with injuries and and also just. Uh, kind of mindset issues um, over the past couple of years, I would say. Um, I think that's, that's a big thing that I've been working on a lot is my, like, mindset and just uh, working on my on my head off the court. And uh, I think, I mean, hopefully I'm, I'm pushing up to uh, boost up my ranking a little bit and uh, get to where I want to be. Can, can I probe there? What do you, What do you mean by mindset? Uh, just like, it's a lot of stuff. It's just like more off the court stuff for me. Um, when, when I'm in the past, when I'm not on the court or when I'm not at the center training or at a tournament, like I'm not, I wasn't thinking about tennis at all, but now like, I feel like I'm making a lot more of my decisions based on what's good for my tennis and just like keeping tennis in mind all the time. Um, really just trying to do everything I can. 
how would you assess your maturity level when you turn pro? Not my maturity level was not there. That that's one of the biggest things. I, I was uh, very very immature, I would say, and I think that's that's one of the biggest things that's had to change. Along with my, I mean, that's come with my injuries. Just uh, I was one of the kids that growing up, um, I never felt like. I was at risk for injury. I never had injuries growing up, and uh, the, my my few injuries here have uh, really changed the way that I go about stuff. Uh, I feel like I do do things a lot more professionally now. And I'm I'm telling you, like when I when I hurt my knee, I was basically kissing my knee to sleep at night. I was treating it so well. So um, it was it's it's really big for me, just at a maturity point. Um, yeah, just keeping keeping everything um, mature and making good decisions. Did, did you happen to catch the uh, the list the the entry list for Little Rock, the challenger this week that uh, was going around social media? Did, did you I did it? not. I saw something on Twitter that Mike C. Mike Cation put up, but I didn't. I didn't even see what it was. Well, you know, Jack, Jack Sock has entered, and and Chung, and um, I mean, you go through the list, and you'll. I think casual fans would recognize a few names, and hardcore fans would probably recognize most of the names. This is a, a, a long yeah. way away from Rome. What What are those events like? I mean, when, when people come across these, you know, you, you mentioned Savannah before. When when people come across these level events, give us a sense of what those are like on the ground. Well, um, it's really just a, a bunch of people just like grinding to to get where they want to be. I don't think anyone there is happy where they are. And uh, I think everyone is, is really like every time you play a challenger, you're, you're grinding to to get out of those tournaments and play the bigger tournaments. Um, you really see people, I don't know, it, it's so different than, than a tour event. I mean, you, you really have to do a lot more stuff yourself. You have you have trainers on site, obviously, and, and the facilities are – I mean, they're getting better, but it, it's just completely different. Like some tournaments, you have to be struggling for practice courts. You don't have much practice time. Um, the, there's not as many trainers, not as much. Uh, it just is not. It's not convenient, and you really, you really gotta do everything you can in those tournaments. It's, it's just, yeah. I mean, just not, not convenient. How do you keep your spirit up? And I'm, I'm also thinking about you in terms of of college tennis and. You know, it's college living is good living. I mean, do you do you ever say to yourself, "Boy, I I could be living the good life, uh, playing for Duke or Carolina, or or I could have had my pick of colleges." Here, here I am doing my own wash at the Super Eight in in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> uh, well, definitely not Duke. That's that's not my school. I'm a, I'm a Tar Heel fan UNC growing guy? up, so <laughs> definitely not Duke, but. I mean, yeah, I mean, those, those thoughts cross, I mean, at least cross my mind. Um, but it, it's it's more just like, is that is that what I want to do? Like, I, I turn pro for more than just like, oh, like I'm, I'm good at it or like I, I, uh, I think I can make it. Like, I'm pretty, like I'm pretty sure. Like, I don't want to say I know I can make it, but like I'm pretty close to knowing I can make it. And like I, I wouldn't change my profession for for anything really um i I don't want to sit behind a desk later on in life i mean that's not not really what i want to do um i I can't really sit still like just just on this call so sorry um for me it's it's just uh 
I mean, I like being active. I like being out in the sun, and I like competing. Like, I really just like being out there and competing. And now, like, I, I feel like I've, I've changed it around to where um, when I have those type of thoughts, like, all right, like, uh, let's go to the gym and let's, like, do do everything we can. Let's work Let's work really hard, work my ass off. And, and uh, like, if you do, I, I really feel like it's going to pay off. They were talking to Alexander Zverev um, a couple days ago, and they asked him why he seems to be struggling. And he was really interesting. One of the things he said was that, you know, it's so easy when people do everything for you, and all you have to do is worry about hitting a tennis ball. And lately he's had to take on more duties himself. Who, how, how much sort of uh, how much work are you doing beyond hitting the ball? I mean, do, do, you, do you have a full-time coach? Do you have someone booking your travel? How much responsibilities do you have beyond the tennis itself? So I don't really, I can't, I can't really complain about anything there. I have a full-time coach, Diego Moyano, that I've been working with for literally six years now. So it's, that's been really good. No complaints there. Um, he might even work harder than me. The guy's a, a complete workhorse. Um, and then I have my agent, uh, Wajid Syed. He's he he books like my travel for me, my my hotels. He does most of that, makes all the connections, and uh, I mean I don't I don't have any complaints there uh, at all. It, it's it's more just uh, making sure I have all the right stuff for me and all the right people around me, and I feel like my team does a great job with that. I think it's more just up to me. Let me ask you two basketball questions. You you mentioned Duke. Oh man, please don't bring up Sunday. What happens Sunday? You're a Denver Nuggets fan. You're a Sixers fan. No, I'm a, I'm a Sixers fan. Ben Simmons is a point yeah. guard. The way Novak Djokovic is a serving volleyer. Do you, you think? Yeah, I, I wasn't going to bring uh, that up, but uh, you, you you like you think the coach has to go, or are you going to give him another year? Well, I think I think he signed. I think he resigned yesterday. Yeah, I know they gave him uh, <clears throat> they gave him some rope. That's probably the right move. Probably yeah. the right. Yeah. I'm. I'm not. Like, I. I don't. I don't really know too much about Brett Brown um, coaching. Obviously, like I don't have the inside scoop or anything. But um, I, I really like the guys on the team. Ben Simmons uh, obviously needs to work on his shot a little bit, but uh, I, I really like uh, the new guys they brought in. That that shot. That shot at the end. Uh, the the Kawhi shot reminded me of a, a let court winner on match point that like hits the net twice and decides to uh, droop over. How, how come you're a Sixers fan? Are you you're from Carolina, right? So my yeah, I grew up in Carolina. I was actually born up uh, in Jersey, right outside Philly. But okay. like I moved down to North Carolina before I was even a year old. Um, but my my whole family's from up there, and like once I turned pro and started training and living on my own. Uh, my parents moved back up there, so like my my family's uh, Philly at heart. But I mean, I, I still like I'm I'm raised in North Carolina. I'm a North Carolina boy. What What do your folks do? Uh, my mom's an audiologist, and uh, my so my mom's been remarried a couple of times. She's married uh, my stepdad now, and he distributes meat uh, across Philadelphia. So he his his work hours are actually ridiculous. Like he I think he starts in the morning at three o'clock in the morning and then works till like eleven and then he's done for the day. You've seen Rocky, right? Yeah. 
Oh, clearly some Rocky stuff yeah, right there. Exactly. Um, all right, so last, so I'm thinking about the NBA, though. I'm thinking about these these players on a 10-day contract that uh, they get the call mm-hmm. up, they're there for 10 days, and they really try to, you know, assert themselves and show that they belong. And I'm, I'm thinking uh, it's not not altogether different. You know, you, you have a, a main draw wild card for a major surface you like. Mm-hmm. How, how do you maximize this without burdening yourself with pressure? Um... I mean, I don't, I don't really, I don't really feel it as pressure at all. Um, I know a lot of people think that's crazy because it is like a, a pressure situation for most people, and uh, I don't, I don't really think about it like that. I just think about it as a, as a great opportunity to show how hard I've been working and, and uh, show, show what I can do. You know. You've, uh, you've done it before there, and you've done it on the surface, and uh, as we speak, you're still 21 years old. Plenty of time. Um, yeah, not, not much longer. 20, uh, t- 22 years old is nothing in tennis right now. you you got 15 more years. Um, thanks. Uh, I, I appreciate this. Good luck over there. And uh, go in some matches, man. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, man. You too. Thanks. All right. Thanks to Tommy Paul. We wish him well when he plays in the main draw of the 2019 French Open and uh, tries to recapture some of the magic of uh, when he won the junior title there um, five years ago. Next guest, Tim Mayotte. Tim is a former top 10 player, probably familiar to uh, many of you, Stanford player who uh, was very esteemed during his pro career. And Tim was, I believe, the first person to throw his name to the hat when Justin Gimmelstab announced that he would be resigning from his ATP Tour board spot Last month, um, Tim has a lot of thoughts about men's tennis, what he might do differently. And while he was not selected for that board spot, he uh, brings a lot of interesting ideas and uh, perspective to the table. So we wanted to talk with Tim, tell us what he's thinking, why he decided to uh, actually try and run for the spot, but also more generally what he's thinking about where men's tennis is right now. So uh, here from the Boston area where he runs an academy is Tim Mayotte. You decide to make a run at this vacated board seat, and I have a very simple question for you. Why? First of all, it was uh, spawned out of uh, my concern about uh, Justin Gimbelstop staying on the board. That was the first and primary concern. Um, Being an alumni member and a past president of the council and a past board member, I just but it seemed totally outrageous that uh, a guy would represent the sport who had that history. And uh, some people argue that, well, he didn't, he wasn't guilty until after this no contest plea. But uh, given the history and the Halloween event, it seemed at that point it was um, it was time to think about it. My understanding was nobody else was running, so I had to put my, you know, I had to get in there. But then as I thought about it. I thought I'd be a very good candidate and had some good in, good ideas after being on the outside for a long time, and um, so I threw my hat in the ring. Transparency has not necessarily been uh, a, a core strength of this whole process. So g- give us a sense of what happened. I mean, did, did you speak with the council? Did you present your sort of planks, for lack of a better word? I mean, how, how did you get your candidacy out there and sort of make everybody aware of what you were going to try to do? Well, the first misunderstanding that I had from the board is I asked uh, the folks who were in charge of it 
how they were going to arrive at the short list. And uh, I think they misunderstood me. Uh, they didn't answer the question after two or three times. They just said it was going to be a short list was going to be made. And uh, I assumed that meant nobody, you know, nobody that they would identify. So as it turns out, I was wrong. Perhaps they should have asked who was making the decision. Um, then, then I'm perhaps I would have got the answer that I wanted, which was that the the player council is making the decision. But I I was uh, you know very concerned because I didn't get that answer when I when I asked for it. So then. Uh, that was the first line of defense. And then, you know, the players, they don't have to necessarily be transparent. Um, I was given the chance to send in my CV and uh, my resume and also a platform. I reached out to all the players, uh, invited them to that, you know, see if I could call them. And I ended up speaking with one player. Uh, so there was definitely a sense that, uh, you know, I was very much behind the uh, the process, and that also let me feel made me feel that you know perhaps the whole thing was very closed up. So, so you I mean, let's just be clear. So, more I think more than a dozen candidates threw their hat in the ring alongside you, and then you're saying that the ten player council whittled that to six for whom they voted on on May 14th. Did they give you any sense of what was the basis for whittling that down? I mean, the, the group of six candidates. It didn't include you. It didn't include Brad Gilbert. You're both former top 10 players. There, there were some other names I think people were surprised didn't make the cut. Were you ever made no. aware of what the criteria was no. to, for arriving no. at that six? But, uh, you know, it, I don't know if they owe that to us or not. Uh, I certainly think that my qualifications were as strong as anybody that was chosen. Uh, they don't perhaps owe that to me. Uh, I've been out of the game for a while, but... Uh, uh, no, there was no. There was a sense of, you know, the players will look at your CV and then uh, get back. You know, they'll get back with a with a smaller list, short list. Let's talk more generally. I mean, do, do you think the ATP, as it's currently structured, can work? Well, I think that that's can it work? It can work. I don't think it's going to work to the benefit of the players in the best possible way. The biggest reason, well, actually, I would say the two biggest reasons is that the players need to engage the slams more uh, because there's just a tremendous amount of money that uh, should be made, you know, that the players have a right to because they've helped build these slams over the year that they're not getting. The percentages are very low that they get compared to any other pro event that I know of. And then the second thing is the players have to start fixing the entry pathway for the younger players, both in terms of money and clarity. Uh, and you talk about transparency. So it's a little bit of a minutia for people who don't really follow tennis, but in the last uh, year, year and a half, the ITF changed the way that the ranking system works for players trying to make it in to the higher level tour and by all accounts including mine they botched it terribly on top of that they have img as one of the sponsors of the ranking system which is totally outrageous that a group that runs uh, a management the biggest management group in the world 
is sponsoring a ranking system. So the players have to get involved more in that. And I'm not sure if the legal are the legal setup of the ATP tour allows the players to get into those areas. I don't know if you saw the piece that uh, my, my colleague, Mike McCann, I assigned him to take a look at the ATP and, and tennis more generally and sort of report back. What do you see? And he was absolutely astounded by the conflicts of interest. You just mentioned one with IMG. We should, we should point out, too, that I, IMG, apart from the, uh, the, the rankings, has a seat on the board representing tournaments, and yet they also represent players. Um, I, I'm not sure. Quite, you're, you're, you're laughing. What, what do we do about these conflicts? It's shocking. It really is. And it was there way back uh, when I started on the board, and uh, I was hoping at that point that they would make a run at trying to change that, and obviously it's getting worse. Um, the thing that shocked me is when well, all this shocks me when you talk about IMG on the title sponsor of a ranking, but also then Justin's production company, Justin Gimmelsau's production company, was producing material for the ATP, uh, apparently to the tune of one or two million dollars. So, what, so what, do we do, fact, what do we do about all this? You, you, I mean, you're uh, right. You have, you have a board member uh, receiving a bid from a media contract. It's just, I mean, that's sort of... Conflicts 101. I mean, not not even a close call. But what what can we do about this? Well, what I wanted to do is get in there and really start to change the, the bylaws and demand that there is separation and accountability on that front. It, it, it just has to be the first thing. Otherwise, the, you know, you're going to continue to lose trust in the system. And we've already got enough problems, with, especially with gambling, and then now with the entryway problems into the tour, and you know you're going to have to take a wholesale look at the bylaws of ATP and tennis in general, and come clean on all this stuff. You mentioned the majors, you mentioned the slams, and the the 250 events make no money, and the 500 events make very little money. The Masters events make more, but you're right. I mean the the bulk of the revenue here is being generated at the majors, but if the players somehow negotiated double the prize money, really cut into the revenues that these slams are making. Does that not have the impact of diminishing the rest of the tour? I mean, do you, do you worry that if these majors get bigger and bigger and players are getting more and more of their income from these four events, that has the impact of, of sort of neutering the other events on the calendar? I don't think it neuters them, but it definitely uh, doesn't help. And, but I think that, and this would have been part of my proposal to the council, was you take a certain amount of that money and you distribute it at the lower ends. So whether it would be the 250s or even below there, the challengers and some of the futures, because that's part of the way of helping the uh, the entry pathway. So I think the players would have to ask or would ask a tremendous amount, which I think they deserve, but also then the players would have to give back and make sure that pathway is made uh, even even feasible right now. I've, I've had a couple of kids playing younger, you know, 20-year-olds who, who practice with me who consider, you know, they're just going to pack it up. The rankings are so messed up, they can't make enough money, and that has to change. So I think you would 
get the money that you want from the slams and then find a way to distribute it down lower. Now, obviously, that's expanding the player's role in the game much higher, but I think it has to because right now, you know, they're not being uh, consulted enough. And that's also why I was going to petition that the board members should be full-time. They should travel with the players. You know, I know that Federer and Nadal were upset that they didn't get uh, didn't get information about what was going on with the CEO of the ATP and that he was being let go. And so these guys need to be on the road full time. They they need to be at least 25 to 30 weeks full time in touch with everybody. You, know, you might have to up their salaries so that they're not uh, interested in or, or have to, um, you know, look for these other things to, to do to make income. But they they should be full time. You're, no you're talking question. about the six the six board members. Well, the three certainly. I mean, whatever the play, whatever the tournaments want to do, that's their business. But the players need to be the player reps on the board need to be with the players more. And the council members, I know, I was one. You don't have time to be chatting to, to people in the locker room and knowing what's going on with the various contracts that are being negotiated and understanding the structure. I didn't understand that stuff till I got on the tour board. I was retired. So uh, you have to make their positions full-time, representing the players only, and then start from there. You mentioned the information, and, and you know Roger and Rafa both have been fairly public complaining, uh, complaining about that. And Novak has pushed back a little and said, listen, we have a process here that we need to respect. We have closed-door meetings that we need to respect. And I don't think this is necessarily unique to tennis, but I do think there, there's an interesting threshold about what is transparency and what is prudence. Do you, do you have any thoughts on has this been sufficiently opened or, or is, is Novak correct that these are, you know, he, he has a duty to preserve some confidentiality here and not report on every meeting? I mean, where, where do you see this? Oh, I, I, no, I agree with that. I think that you always have to have uh, that walk that line between saying this is what we're doing and they the the issue comes up is if Federer and Nadal are not conferred at all about such a major decision, you've and you don't need to do that in public. You do that, but according to them, they didn't hear anything about it. Number one, and then number two, in light of the this is why you've got to clear up all the conflicts of interest. You know, I you start to think the worst when there's all these other problems circling around. You just you just assume the worst. Oh, there, you know that's that shouldn't because of the conflicts just make you think that there's all this stuff that may or may not be going on. So those two things go together. But no, there's no question they have to um, you have to have some balance. But this is where the full time board member would come in because they would have the ability to um, to talk to all the players. Right. There's a famous Washington Post piece by uh, John Hellyer, great, great business writer from mm-hmm. from the '80s, and it it talks about uh, conflicts in tennis and and Donald Dell, who was broadcasting a match of a <laughs> event that he owned in uh, a player whom he represented. Is this just the way tennis is structured, perhaps defectively, or or do you think? this recent set of circumstances is particularly extraordinary. I mean, how much of this is social media and Justin's case was obviously, again, exceptional. How much of this, when you were playing in the eighties, you had some of these same issues. 
No, it's, it was the same issues then. Just they're just much more public. Whether it's uh, people saying it's it's a fair process, or whether people saying you know there's got to be more transparency. But the, it's the exact same. You had tournament directors who were also part of management companies back then, like Donald and like Mark McCormick, who had players. And then you had uh, we signed the agreement with IM to sell our tournament rights while you know you've got all these other conflicts going on so that's uh but we have to work hard to start to to put a uh i don't know if you can put the whole uh, genie back in the bottle but you have to start making it look like you're not even look you have to t- take some action right well i mean the, start limiting it yeah i mean the, the alternative to putting the genie back in the bottle is to smash the bottle and start all over um, I mean, you know, Novak Novak talks very obliquely about restructuring and, and a flawed system and reading between the lines. You wonder if he doesn't have it in mind. I mean, clearly he was dissatisfied with the previous CEO. And given the track record, that's a little bit hard to defend unless you come at this from a totally different perspective of this entire model doesn't work, whether it's unionization or whether it's a completely different structure. The alternative to putting the tube back in the toothpaste is to, uh, you know, th- throw. We're going to keep this analogy going. Th- throw out the tube and uh, start with a new teeth whitening product. I mean, do you, you still well, think I the think ATP can work? I think that's why you got to take a close look at the bylaws and see if the the players can get in the position where they can attend to their interests with the with the slams and continue something of the same framework. But that's uh, you know you're going to have to get in to some very intense legal work and then decide if it makes sense to keep it or to change it. But because the slams continue to make more and more money, um, the players, their interest now shifts way beyond just the tour, but, but also with, uh, you know, with the four grand slams and also the ITF, if you throw in this issue with the, the computer ranking and the, you know, the pathway up, through the uh, through the pro- juniors into the pros, so the players in a, a different position. I mean, when I was playing the the slams, I mean, I, I can't even remember what the prize money was. It was it was negligible compared to where it is now. And uh, so you need, the players need an arm that directly works with uh, slams. And I would actually say at this point the the ATP one thousands are becoming extremely valuable. Uh, which is another issue to look at because uh, now you're you know you're looking at 10-day events um, and you see what uh, Larry Ellison's done with with Indian Wells. Right. That, those events were in some ways given by the players. Those nine events, they were 11 back then. To you know, they didn't necessarily pay for those, and now they're becoming mega mega events. Well, I mean, the, the other open secret, though, is that there is real resistance in some quarters of of the board and the ATP, the membership more generally, about these mixed events that uh, I've heard it described as a, a WTA tax. I mean, there there is a real co- cohort of players and board members that feel as though we, we, we talk about equal prize money as an abstraction and sort of a, a social justice issue. But I think there are a lot of players who have some very strong feelings about that. Where do you stand on? prize money in these mixed events i'm i'm for it i'm for equal prize money i think that tennis has to 
take advantage of the fact that it's the only sport that has men and women together. I just think it's a it's a that's a virtue. It sets us apart from the golf doesn't do it. I mean, you know, who who else would do it? NBA and WNBA wouldn't fly. And I think the women bring tremendous value. And in this tournament setting, they they bring equal value. So I'm I'm absolutely for the uh, the prize money. But I, I think that they should look at you know some mixed doubles events. I really do. I think that would be a at, you know, at, what at run-of-the-mill tournaments, you mean? At, uh, yeah, at, at as a Madrid, way of using it positively. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing is that I know everybody thinks I'm crazy, but I'll, I'll let them think I'm crazy. The other thing I think people should look at is, one, to get the, the other big underutilized, um, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I am, <laughs> the, is doubles. And we saw with the, with, uh, the Labor Cup, you know, how crazy exciting it is to have the top guys playing my idea and i know this will go nowhere but i think it's a fun idea to think about is have one ranking system where you would have 85 percent singles 15 percent doubles and that would determine the number one player in the world period oh i don't I, uh, if, if you were to weight it like that i don't think yeah, that's crazy at all i, I mean think uh, it would be so fun i mean no, if you had a big match and yeah. a standalone doubles event, or at Wimbledon, and Federer comes out. You know, he's playing with, uh, you know, with Waranka, and it just, I, I just think people would go absolutely bananas for doubles at that level with the best players. I mean, we see it week to week when the when the top guys step on the doubles court, uh, people go through the roof. I, I think that's a tough sell with about eight players. <laughs> you happen to be the top eight, and I bet everyone on down, especially especially if it were weighted. That's a real. I mean. Um, yeah. Interesting I idea. Did raise, I raised it 20 years ago when I was on the board 25 years ago, and they, the top guys looked at me like, oh, yeah, it's exactly. crazy. But then yeah. I said, you should do a you know, six- or seven-year phase-in. You could start at the bottom, at the futures, and then those guys would be long gone by um, the time uh It's a tough, tough ask at the majors. There, but... I think that's, it's, it's tough to ask these guys to play best of five for, uh, for seven matches and then also keep up a double schedule, but... At yeah, a run of the mill event, I love, event. I love it. So, anyway. um, all right, let me one last question. This is a yes. the, the crucible. This is a real crucible issue for the future of the sport. If if you had to vote on the underhand serve, you for or against? Uh, I'm a hundred percent for it. Oh, good. All right. Absolutely. I knew we liked you. All right. All right. Why? Why do you say it like that? Because it's strangely, I'm completely with you, and strangely enough, it seems to be a very polarizing issue. And, uh, Why? Because it's like a it's, drop shot. What, you, wanna, you don't totally, hit drop shots? I'm, I would use every legal advantage you should be using, but uh, uh, whether it's the I optics or whether doing it. I I, I've it. heard uh, somebody today saying tennis needs a balk rule, so if you try it, you have to do it from a certain motion. <laughs> um, all right. We're, we're all for no, the underhand no, because serve. The other thing is, uh, and some women may get mad at me, but if Serena were to look at a 65 mile an hour serve uh, at waist high, two feet in front of the baseline, or you know a little dip, a little slice drop shot serve where she would have to scramble in. Um, I mean, you know, I think she would prefer the 65 mile an hour serve right into her roundhouse. I'm completely so, with you. Yeah, I, I just uh, think it's a totally it. underused and really creative way of playing the game. 
and it neutralizes court position, and you, you you salt it with a little bit of spin, and it's uh, a different look. I I'm all right. We're we're on the same side. My, uh, I'll, I'll plug my academy at the plug Tim Academy. academy. We actually have the kids practice it. They'll never use it because they think it's not tennis, but I tell them to use it. Every advantage. And I'll give you, you one use. more plug for we're having a sixty thousand dollar WTA tournament and at the Thoreau Club here in Concord. So you're more than welcome. That's in Concord, Mass. That's in, in no, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll spread the word. That's in Concord, Mass. The week that's in August yeah. uh, before the Open. Yeah, twelfth. I'm the twelfth, August twelfth. So right. I shamelessly plugged the tournament. No need to so, uh, apologize for it. John, anything. thank you so much for talking. This was great. Thanks, Tim. Take care. All right. All right. Thanks to Tommy Paul and thanks to Tim Mayotte, two uh, players, uh, current player and a former player, very different points in their career, but good to hear their perspectives both. Uh, Jamie. I will bring you in after your uh, expert producing. Um, let's. You want to talk Tim Mayotte first? Thoughts about uh, his perspective on men's tennis and some of the challenges, especially in the in the governance area facing the ATP. What what struck you from that conversation? He's all for underhand serving. That was my takeaway as well. <laughs> I can't. All right. You know what? As long as you brought it up. Uh, am I wrong here? Is there is there an equivalent in, in soccer that I'm missing out on? I cannot figure out why this has become such a polarizing issue. Um, that's a good question. You know, when I was playing, we were younger. We had this uh, corner kick play where it, it was – I played on a team. My coach was Spanish, so they, they call the, the play name in Spanish. But regardless, it was, <laughs> it was a play where a girl would just kind of, like, hang out and, like, tie her shoe – right above like the 18 yard box and then really quickly she would get up and run to the corner really fast and come and get the ball right at her feet turn face the net can either pass it shoot it whatever it was we scored a lot of goals on that play and they probably felt extra good because there was this element of strategy in it too right so i mean it's not completely the same but it is very strategic and so but then of course it doesn't work after a while so all right so that's fine I don't, I don't mind that it's right so i feel job. like that's something that i think about with the underhand serve is like all right how many times can you really is it repeatable as a as a tactic right. um and and that's really what it probably ends up being is something you employ here or there i mean it's not something you can yeah, it's, a, it's it's a tactic yeah. i you know i think most sports have these right i mean baseball has a hidden ball trick or the runner you know, you have a runner on first and third, and you fake the throw. Or basketball has some funny inbounds plays as well. The football has, I don't know, the fumble ruski or trick play or flea flicker. They don't work every time. You're right. not calling a flea flicker multiple times uh, a right. game. But right. one time, it keeps the defense honest, certainly within the rules. I, I don't understand. In a competitive industry like sports, I'm not sure optics like it either works or it doesn't, but whether it violates some unwritten rule or whether uh, it looks silly, I, I don't necessarily think should be part of the calculus. I, I'm for I'm all for underhand serves. Um, more materially, Tim had some very strong thoughts about uh, conflicts of interest that you and I have been speaking about uh, for a long time. I mean, I, I don't want to turn this into uh, an ATP governance podcast, but I just think the real fundamental question is. Can this model work or has this outlived its usefulness is having an organization where you have tournaments and players, labor and management, both on the same side of the table? Has that outlived its usefulness? And one thing that's a, been a little disappointing to me is I, I think Novak Djokovic has sort of gone here a little bit and he has broached this topic of unionization. 
he has broached this issue of maybe we just need to totally reconsider the model. I think he's onto something. But then when he's pressed about it, he sort of recoils and says he was misquoted or it was taken out of context or that's really not something he can talk about. I mean, the, the whole um, I mean, I guess my, one of my issues with Novak is that I feel like he's, he's really onto something, but then he's not really owned it. And uh, I'm curious to see. They have gotten rid of a CEO and haven't really given a reason why. They haven't really presented an alternative candidate. There is still this air of mystery. There was a back and forth. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, did you see the exchange with, with Ben Rothenberg on uh, that was floating around the social media? Did you see that? Uh, I had my head at work all day, but I'm going to I'm going it's, to it's take worth, a look at it. It's worth listening to. I mean, I think neither of them necessarily came prepped for uh, for battle, but I think Ben's point is a good one, which is you can't have it both ways. And if you're going to essentially run this coup and, and oust a CEO that a lot of people are, think are popular, that a lot of people are happy with, including, it seems, Federer and Nadal, you kind of owe it to us to explain why or what the alternative is. Um, it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting listen. But uh, anyway, um, Tim was not one of the people chosen. There were six six candidates chosen, and now it's a runoff at Wimbledon between Nicholas Lapenti, a uh, former top ten player from South America, now in his early 40s, and, and Weller Evans, who uh, a longtime ATP guy, used to travel, and I, th- I think it was... I always thought of as a real advocate for the players, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how that vote, that sort of runoff that will occur at Wimbledon, how that shakes out. Um, Tommy Paul headed to uh, the main draw of the French Open. Um, We can debate another time whether or not these other majors should have wild cards that they divvy up and give to uh, the slams. Whenever I see that, I'm always thinking, there are a lot of players from countries that don't have the good fortune of hosting a slam that mm. don't have this back door to getting players in the main draw. That's a big one for you. You bring that one up often. I just find it so <laughs> distasteful. Um, but uh, thought, thoughts about Tommy? I don't know if you did. You remember when he won the juniors? Uh, yeah, I think I was telling ago? you we had him on the podcast. I thought really? we did. I really thought we did. Like way back when. Maybe not. Maybe it was somewhere. No, I don't else. know. I, I uh, we we can look that up. We can check. But um. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that he admitted that, you know, he was I- immature, lacking maturity. So I think that's the a, a big thing, and that's really good for him to realize, and hopefully that will help his game. Um, you know, he he's not on the level of the Francis TFOs and, and that kind of thing just yet, but... And he was, I mean, that's the interesting thing, is he just, you just never know. I mean, right. he, he was, he was right in that core group with... Taylor Fritz and some of these guys have made the uh, some of these guys have made the jump. Some of them are outside the top 200. There was this real cluster of juniors three years ago, four mm-hmm. years ago that came out, and uh, Riley Opelka right. had some injuries and took one. Now Riley Opelka is doing just fine. So it's it's interesting how these players progress. But we say this all the time: as the field gets older, the urgency uh, diminishes. So if you need a few years, a few years of seasoning to find your game. You, you can get that. And, um, and unlike uh, Zarev, who we've been talking about, you know, kind of in the same context, he's not in the same spotlight. Uh, Tommy Paul is not in the same spotlight. So I think that probably helps him to just kind of grind along and, and get back, uh, you know, recover from his injury, as he said, and, and just get stronger. So that will probably help. I don't think that uh, you mentioned Zverev. I would not say that he is uh – one of the strong contenders to win the French Open, given his form in uh, in 2019. Who do you like? You had to pick today. I don't know. So we were, we've been talking about this. 
feel like every week brings us more data points, so we have more of a basis for forming uh, right. decent predictions. I mean, Rafa still has not shown us anything spectacular. Um, but again, as we've been saying every week, that doesn't mean we're now all of a sudden counting him out. But I think, um, and I, I said this before, I think the fact that you have other players who were maybe five steps behind, they now seem like only two steps behind. So Dominic team, uh, I think it's very possible that he could win a major sooner rather than later. Um, will it come at the French? I don't know. But if, if you know, if Rafa trips up in an early round, suddenly um, he's definitely a favorite up there. I mean, Djokovic won again this weekend. Right. Um, so can't ever really count him out either. But uh, we'll see. I think, you know, we, we all like the prediction game and we all who's player drafting and who are your expert picks. And, you know, sports gambling is predicated on this idea that we think we know more than the other guy and we are going to foretell the future. The truth is that apart from how difficult it is just to name the names, you also realize how many other variables there are. So if the clay, it's, it's a sloggy, misty day and it slows down the clay, how does that impact? If someone has a tough five set or the middle weekend, how is that going to impact things? I mean, there's so many variables apart from just the base question of how is player X playing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, I, I did a radio show two days ago and they asked me that. And I thought, you know, I just I have such a hard time picking against Nadal on clay. By virtue of what he's done since 2004, 2005, I feel like he's almost owed the respect. If he, if he came in uh, you know, with, with a cane and a walker and <laughs> no points to his record, I think he's still someone you have to consider. So I feel as though he sort of owed a bit of respect based on history. But I can't remember feeling like this about Nadal on, on clay. Just, it, I think it would almost be uh, an upset pick at this point. No? Give me a funny look. An upset pick to, to to if he if he won his twelfth French Open yeah. after the season he has had from the Australian Open final to the present with injuries and with these shaky matches and Fonini and overplaying I mean he's pl- played a lot of tennis on clay this is where he makes his bones and this is where sort of his season peaks but he's been to a lot of different places I I just think if he were to go if he doesn't win in Rome we're recording this on uh, on Wednesday. If he does not win Rome and basically goes over the clay run-ups and then walks into the French Open and wins, I would have to put that among sort of his, his great career achievements. And yet, on the other hand, you say, my God, the guy's won 11 times. Like, he's going to be a contender. I mean, I'm, I'm really I'm, – I'm torn on the doll. I do think if he were to win the French Open, this would almost kind of be an upset despite the fact that he's sort of wow. whatever defending champion he's he's uh, for not, up to now since Dan For Bob not Franken. being able to make a pick, that's a strong statement. I, I go back to variables too, though, right? So what are his six matches leading in? Well, that's what, a, are, yeah. what are the weather conditions? I mean, last year he had a rain delay and he had to go back. It was a completely different match. Um, mm-hmm. So much go, you realize how many things have to go right for a player to win a major and also how many other factors. I mean, if David Ferrer is playing and gives your previous opponent the the tough five set match. Right. And then and softens them up and delivers the body blows. That makes your life easy. So I think um, a lot can happen in uh, the course of 127 matches per and, draw. And it would just be a big factor about how his body holds up. I think that's been a theme for him this year. I mean throughout his You're career. Rafa. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah. but if he comes in and he's he's rested, you know, maybe he loses early in in Rome and all of a sudden he's 
rested and ready to go. I mean, you never know how it, it it's going to affect him. So, are you on the Kiki Burton's train? The Kiki Burton's train, actually. Yeah, she. Uh, it was funny. I got the alert that she was. Kiki Burton's moves into the top five in the race alert? in the race race to Singapore. Oh, well, so yeah, I was. I, <laughs> exactly. Uh, God bless Kiki Burton's. I'm not sure that's alert worthy. No, it was like an email. Okay, all right. <laughs> email uh, alert. <laughs> we'll give you an email alert. Uh, I think I'm loving the women's draw. Can I just say that? We have Naomi Osaka going for her third straight major, which no player has done, Serena notwithstanding, on the women's side in this decade. A little I mean, low-key, I feel like. What? I feel like low-key she's she's going for that. I feel like a little... Naomi Osaka's won three tournaments for her career. <laughs> Indian Wells, the U.S. Open, and the Australian Open. Um, I mean, not much people career. are talking about that right now. No, I don't. She, I mean, three, th- again, three majors in a row is something that, I mean, Steffi Graf obviously did it. Venus has never done it. Sharapova's never done it. I don't think just, did Justin Cannon ever win? Uh, quick check. I don't believe so. Um, Serena obviously has, but I, I think over the last 20 years, I think Serena's the only women's player to have won three straight majors. Rafa, Roger, and Novak obviously having done it on the men's side. Um, as you look for uh, Justine Hennon's Grand Slam timeline, I will just say that uh, Naomi Osaka has had a very strange career, and yet I would submit that if she quit playing tomorrow, she has already put together uh, a Hall of Fame resume. Did Justine do it? She did not. Um, all right. Well, she, she, she never won Wimbledon, so that's going to make things tough. Uh, all right, Jamie. You know what I say? Thank you, as always, for Thank your you. uh, companionship and your uh, your insight and your producing. Thanks uh, to our guest. Thanks to Tommy Paul. Good luck to him as he plays in the main draw of the French Open. Thanks to Tim Mayotte for uh, spending some time and talking politics. Thanks to you for listening. You can leave a review. You can subscribe. You can uh, keep the guest suggestions coming. They've been great lately, though uh, we are a little bit challenged by a six-hour time difference and, as usual, uncertain match times. But uh, anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. Always a pleasure, and we'll do it again in one week.